Before I read or say anything else, let's pray and seek the Lord's help. Father, we come before you this morning um, with a host of issues, all of our frailty, uh, our failure and remaining corruption, um, all of our mental issues, all of our consequences of sin, all of our fears, all of our injuries, um, and we, we've come here in hope that we might meet with you and find encouragement and help and healing. Uh, we've also come because you've commanded it for our good and for your glory and because we believe you are worthy As we turn our attention to your word, I pray that you would, as always, hide me behind the cross and speak because your servants are listening and speak powerfully so that we emerge changed and helped. We pray for this in Christ's name. God's people said, amen. Amen. The last time we were in James... Uh, we looked at 126 through 24. Um, and what I emphasized last week was really three things. I, I didn't do a great job of emphasizing my outline, um, but there were basically three points. First was that James, and therefore the Bible, does not place a ban on having preference for one person over another. Um, the ban is, is based on developing preferences primarily on external observable, observable factors. Um, so the way that James sets this out is basically he says that wealth doesn't determine what, what somebody's dignity, worth, or value is. There are other things that we should be considering besides how much money somebody has. But the exhortation isn't designed to be restricted to just wealth and what we can see of somebody's wealth. James mentions it because it's the most obvious pitfall, I think, for a church. But an attitude of personal favoritism can be birthed from virtually any observable characteristic that we see in another person. We like their hair, we like their teeth, we like their clothes, we like their talent, we like their voice, we like the way they speak, we like the way they laugh, we like their car, we like their house, we like the way they flatter us, and so we choose to prefer that person um, with virtually no consideration for their heart before the Lord. We're just basing our preference on what we can see or what we experience. Third, one, does everybody remember what number one was? The Bible does not place a ban on having personal preferences. Two, the ban is on developing preferences based on external observable factors alone. Three, if God, who can see the heart, chose you, how much more careful do we need to be about what basis we use for choosing to prefer others. Now, what I didn't do was get into what 
for me as one of the pastors here or for you as one of the members of this church need to be doing as a result? Like what, for you as a believer, what is James 2 telling you to do? And we'll get, we'll get into that, answering those questions today. We'll pick it up in verse five. James 2, verse five, maybe. Depends on if Kate's paying attention. James 2, five. It appears that it's not working. Oh, there it is. Perfect. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Court? I don't know why I said it like that. The ones who drag you into court, are, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? This is very specific, and this is the struggle that you're going to have when you study James. Is he, he knows exactly what it is that he's trying to say, and he is so specific. He's, he, he, it almost restricts your imagination or your ability to make good, broad application. What he's calling us to do, this is first, right? I said, what are we supposed to do in response to what he said in 126 through 2.4? First, you need, you must make an honest assessment of yourself. You, you have to properly evaluate what your priorities are, what your interactions with other people are like, or you're going to mess this whole preference thing up. You're going to mess up this whole personal favoritism thing. Think about it like this. Who persecutes you? Well, it's America. I'm sorry, it's the United States. It's 2022. Like, if you, you know, depending on what circles of the internet you frequent, you're probably going to say, the government or nobody really persecutes you. Or uh, if you've if you if you got a real victim mentality, like I tend to have, you could say uh, you're persecuted at work because you're white male Christian, right? You don't get the same opportunities. Like r- ridiculous things you can come up with. But what James is saying contextually is who persecutes you, believers scattered abroad from Jerusalem, to all these places in the wide-known world? Who blasphemes the name of Jesus Christ? This is easier for us. Who does that? Well, probably the same people for for whose movies and concerts we're buying tickets to. Now, that wasn't me going, that's why we're banning Disney in this church. (laughs) Not going there. But we need to be honest and evaluate carefully. Who blasphemes the name of Jesus Christ? And I think immediately the question that emerges as you consider those things is, why am I, do I tend to be rather so desperate for their approval? Why am I so interested in them approving of me? And immediately we see that there's a piece to this whole personal favoritism puzzle that we didn't even touch last week. When I first came to preach at Springfield, I think it was 
September last year, uh, 2021. What I, what I did was, because I'm like, I don't know these people and they don't know me, so to set the table, we'll just go through a three-part series on the gospel because that was all that, that the existing church committed to at that point. Like, yeah, come fill the pulpit for three weeks. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to compress the gospel into three weeks and, and try to enhance not gospel literacy, but gospel fluency. I wanted to get us to the place where if somebody said, hey, what's the gospel? You would have an answer. So here's what we did. We said, what's the gospel? The gospel's good news, right? Made it real easy. What does good news do? Well, good news pierces or invades dark places, bad news areas. That's where good news has efficacy and power. You're expecting a cancer diagnosis, it ends up being nothing. That's good news, right? It invades a dark place. In order to fully appreciate that, we have to know what the bad news is. The bad news is sin and the fall, right? Adam, as the representative head of humanity, sinned against God and broke everything. Then what we did was we organized everything being broken into three categories. One, the divine relationship is broken. So the relationship between creature and creator, us and God, doesn't work like it was supposed to. In fact, it ceases to exist. Two, human relationships are broken. So we don't get along with one another the way that we were designed to. We either idolize people or despise people, and there doesn't seem to be really any middle ground. Three, earth is broken. The whole universe but for us, observably, earth is broken. So we've got disease, we've got predators, we've got trouble in the garden with weeds. and right, like Nothing quite works the way that it's supposed to. And I said back then, everybody knows that everything is broken. Hollywood knows it, Wall Street knows it, Washington, D.C. knows it, and we certainly know it. We know it because our personal experience with negative emotions, specifically, we experience Fear, shame, and guilt. That's how we know everything's broken. Don't have time to further review all of that. What we do as a as, as, as species, as human beings, what we do is we try to bandage what's broken. We try to patch it up and make it better. Okay? And I said there are four things that we go to to bandage what's broken. I'm just going to recover one right now. One of the bandages we go to when we begin to realize that things are broken and don't work like they're supposed to is the bandage of others. I can gain the approval and support of other people in order to fix what is broken. So we think, and maybe not in, in these details, it's more vague than this, but here's what we think. If I just become popular at school, if I just get my boss to respect me, if I can just get some good friends around me, if I can get a spouse, if I can get my spouse to adore me like she used to, <laughs> if I can make sure my kids like me, if I could get more views on social media, this might be, in our culture, the most common of the bandages that we go to. Approval from other people. 
Here's what it sounds like if you write it out philosophically. The approval of other people will guard me from what scares me, erase what shames me, and undo what makes me guilty. So James asks the question, who persecutes you? Who blasphemes Jesus Christ? Isn't it the rich? Now, this is where it gets weird, right? Because contextually, it's a little different for us than it was for them. In James's time, there was no middle class. There was the extremely rich and there were the extremely poor. This is something that our current overlords in the New World Order are trying to get back to uh, right now. <laughs> Gas didn't quadruple in price because folks in power lost track of the oil. Groceries are not 30% more expensive because all the cows died. And heating costs are not increased 200% because a pipeline broke somewhere, but one did get shut down. This isn't even political. So if you just heard me attacking your favorite president, I didn't. This is all in large measure, though, on purpose. Marxists understand that the only way their agenda is going to work is if they can eradicate the middle class. You eradicate the middle class by destroying their wealth. In a society with no middle class, what you have are a few extremely rich people at the top ruling over everyone else who is dirt poor, living meal to meal. So the poor, which is most people in James's context, the poor live and die at the whims of the rich. Not maybe directly, but indirectly. So if you're poor, it makes sense that you'd want to be in the good graces of the closest wealthy person. Rings a little different in that context, James's illustration. Rich guy shows up to church. What's everybody going to do? Well, let's give him the good seat. Because we don't want to be persecuted for not honoring him enough. Why would you seek to ingratiate yourself to someone who will happily drag you into court at the drop of a hat, lie about your innocence or guilt, and blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ? I wouldn't. Listen to the question again. Why would you seek to ingratiate yourself to someone who will happily drag you into court at the drop of a hat, lie with authority about your innocence or your guilt, and blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. Why would you ingratiate yourself to that person? Because I'm not stupid. That's why. And if I have that person's approval, I'll be okay. It's the bandage of others. The problem with the bandage is that it doesn't work. It fixes nothing, right? Approval from other people does not repair the divine relationship. So let's say Rick, me, Lee, Matt, Cecil, all get together with you and let you know we approve of you. And we talk to Franklin Graham and John Piper, and they love you. And so when you're lost, dying in your sins and stand before the judgment seat of God, you can say, but James liked me. And God will say, that doesn't matter. 
Approval from other people does not fix the relationship that is broken between you and your creator by your sin. It doesn't fix human relationships either. If everyone at work, check this out, thinks you are amazing, at home, dollars to donuts, your, your spouse and kids think you'd rather be at work, and so now you got friction here. You spend your time and affection on one person, it's going to happen at somebody else's expense. You can't hold all things perfectly in balance. Approval doesn't fix what's broken in human relationships, and it certainly doesn't repair what is broken in creation. Let's get Congress, the Senate, the White House, and the Supreme Court to all approve of you, and guess what? You could still get sick and die. Because having the approval of others does not fix what's broken in creation. So why are you still trying to gain the approval of other people? Why are you racking and stacking folks based on external observable factors? Why do you prefer someone who is gorgeous and hates God over someone who is homely and loves him? because you're drinking from the well of others instead of drinking from the fountain of life. So that's first. Honest assessment is what James is calling us to. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, he's not talking to me. James isn't talking to me. He has somebody else in this room or in this church in mind that he's concerned about that's struggling with this. No, no, no. I have myself in mind. I'm asking myself these questions. And if you just decided that you should be up here preaching instead, you're the one who's deceived. Honest self-assessment is absolutely necessary. Why do I tend to try to protect myself by ingratiating myself with others? James 2, 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So here's, here's the deal. Love Excuse me, love is a commandment, amen? Okay, I mentioned a few weeks ago, I think the reason James brings up the mouth is because at church, you have to target the so-called little sins. Remember that? So here James emphasizes the point. Break one law, you're guilty of all of it, okay? So imagine a church where nobody is engaged in sexual immorality. Imagine a church where no one is a thief, no one is a cheat, no one is a coarse joker, no one is rude, no one is a drunk, no one is on the verge of divorce, no one is arguing or fighting with anyone else, and, I mean, so far, sounds good, right? And no one is consistently loving anybody else. Any of us want to be that church? On the flip side, what if we're a church 
who really loves one another. Everybody remember what love is? Act, baby, don't hurt me. Act of the will, right? Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion designed to do somebody else good at my own expense. It might help you to remember that definition by understanding what hypocritical love is. Hypocritical love is an act of the will accompanied by deception designed to do myself good at someone else's expense. Love is a commandment, and I think this church does that, right? Okay. It wasn't a trick question. I really do think that. I think we do that. That, that, the fact that we do love is why I'm okay with us being a little bit messy. I'm okay with the fact that there, there are people here that like struggle with stuff. You don't have to come in and hide it and pretend to be something other than what you are. I'm fine with us being messy. I don't really care what your credit score is. It doesn't matter to me. I don't think that defines your worth as a person. It's way more important to me that we have love here than moralism. (laughs) But let's break it down. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. Okay. Does that not make it sound like in James's view, ergo the Bible's view, because the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of it, does that not make it sound like at the top of the list of things that we need to make a concerted effort to be engaged in is loving one another? Because if you're doing that, he says, you're doing well. Well, guess what's going to happen if you're loving one another? All of the other stair steps down to the small sins get taken care of as well. First table of the law, it's all about loving God. Second table, all about loving your neighbor. Now, the one who seeks to justify himself asks this question. Well, who's my neighbor? Right? So in Luke 10, Jesus replied to that question. Luke 10, 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So the priest sees the dude half dead and he's like, oh, let me go to the other side of the street. But I'm sorry. So likewise, a Levite, When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, You take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And the man who was seeking to justify himself by asking the question, who's my neighbor, said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Uh, Quick modern day translation. Which of these three 
the pastor, the worship leader, or the theological train wreck who shows up to church late proved to be a neighbor to the man who had been beaten by the robbers. And I'll tell you, if it was the theological train wreck who shows up to church late that went and tended that man's wounds and cared for him, he's the one who proved to be a neighbor. But what's really interesting to me is that the question Jesus asks identifies the principle rather than the person. Which of these three proved to be a neighbor rather than which one of these is my neighbor? So who's my neighbor? I mean, whoever needs mercy. Well, who needs mercy? The person who irritates you the most. And you'll go, well, that's not my neighbor, that's my enemy. And I'll say, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Ah. I mean, I have to be careful how much I share about my other life not behind this pulpit. Because... Obviously, it'd be my heart's desire for people that I work with to eventually attend here, get saved, and have their lives changed. So if I use them as an example from the pulpit, I'm going to be like, don't ever come to my church, okay? Or find our website. But I need you to understand, this absolutely wrecked me. Do you need to evaluate who at school, at work, or at home needs Mercy. Honest assessment. Evaluate who needs mercy. And if you're not doling it out, mercy, you are a judge with evil motives. You are holding the faith in Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. So the whole shebang, 26 through 13, is pointed right at you. Man, man, who were these people that James was rebuking? Us. That's who. And likely, what you're doing, if you aren't engaged in a ministry of mercy, likely, what you are doing instead is trying to bandage what's broken with the approval of others. The amount of judgment in my heart right now for the someone who not only isn't at church, but is out scraping something in their junkyard right now, is so high. <laughs> and if you can't hear it, I'm talking about literally right this second, next door. They need mercy. If you're not giving the person who needs mercy, mercy in your own heart and with your own actions and your words, what you're doing is dishonoring Jesus. But, verse 9, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. 
Whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you don't commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Do you see it? If you are preferring the powerful in an attempt to protect or advance yourself and neglecting mercy toward the needy, you're guilty of the whole law. All of it. It doesn't matter that you're only doing the little sin of personal preference. You know the damage that comes from trying to live for the approval of other people? What do you think happens to the soul of a person pretending to be someone that they are? If I act like this, they'll like me. If I talk like this, they'll invite me to their parties. If I dress like this, they'll ignore the fact that I'm a Christian and, and, and be nice to me and not persecute me. They'll see that I'm the cool Christian. So you put on a mask. You pretend to like things that you don't really like. You pretend to be you know, frustrated by things that you're not really frustrated by. You pretend to think things that you don't really think. You fake laugh. You fake outrage at things that you don't find outrageous. You fake approval for things which in your heart you know aren't good or God honoring. And let's say everyone loves you because of that act that you're putting on. They don't love you. They love your act. And deep inside, you know that I'm a fraud. They don't even know me, let alone love me. And even worse, if they hate you, you're left thinking, wait, wait, that's not the person I really am. You don't hate me. I was just pretending to be that person. I'm just a hypocrite. You would love me if you knew who I really was. Would I? Either way, you didn't fix anything. You just put on display the brokenness of human relationships. And God in Jesus through the gospel is calling us to something much better. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So God's calling you to freedom. We saw it in Galatians, right? Not legalism, not license, liberty. And Lo and behold, here we are in the closest thing to the legalist's New Testament handbook, the epistle of James. And what does he say? Speak and act as those who've been called to freedom from bondage to the fear of man. You're like, well, that's not what it says. Okay, here's what it says. Speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Speak and act as those who will be judged by the gospel. What does that mean, judged by the law of liberty? It means, it means you've come to the foot of the cross and you see the Son of Man hanging there, dying. You understand that he gave up incomprehensible wealth and glory. He left paradise, came down into this mess, engaged everything that is broken by sin, broken creation, broken human relationships, and the broken divine relationship, left glory to come into the mess to deal with what's broken. And he's hanging on that cross, becoming your sin. 
altering his own relationship with God the Father and being rejected simultaneously by man and by God in order to reunite, reunite you with your creator. That's why he's doing it. To bring creature and creator back into fellowship, to bring you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, save you from your own evil, redeem you from your own wickedness, free you from bondage to sin. What are the consequences of that redemption? It means you have fellowship with Jesus Christ, friendship with God, and a permanent companion in the person of the Holy Spirit. It means you've come to understand that mankind can't do anything to you unless God ordains it. Freedom, the law of liberty. And you desperately, therefore, want to live in a way which pleases God rather than people. Doesn't mean you do it perfectly, it means you want it really. You would love nothing more than to lay down the infernal fear of man that drives you to make judgments which are not accurate. If you don't show mercy because you'd rather ingratiate yourself to someone powerful, someone respectful, someone respectable, someone with authority, someone with wealth. If you don't show mercy because you're too preoccupied with that person, then the person who needs mercy from you, judgment will be merciless for you. Because a child of God cannot, as a pattern of their life, set aside what pleases God in order to please other people. It can't be done. The priest and the Levite in Luke 10 proved by their lack of mercy that they were loveless, hateful people, and nobody would argue with that. We look at that and we go, how could you just walk by on the other side of the road? There's somebody dying over there. The same way we get preoccupied with people whose opinions don't matter and ignore folks that really need our help. Yeah. It's the same heart at work there. I mean, they kept the moral law. The priest and the Levite tithed. They probably didn't steal, murder, blaspheme, commit adultery, or bear false witness. They just did the little sin of letting somebody rot and die on the side of the road. No big deal. God's fine with that. What? And you begin to see, oh, that's why judgment will be merciless. I don't think that'll ever be said of us. I mean, God knows there are enough churches shaving off the rough edges uh, to, to, to gain approval from a lost and dying world in this town, right? Like, that's not going to be us. We're not going to do that. We'll make sure we're right, right? <laughs> I think if we focus on loving those who need, regardless of what the world wants us to do, it'll be an indication that we understand that mercy triumphs over judgment. 